0: Stacey is the co-host of NPR's The Indicator from Planet Money, and she recently wrote Machiavelli for Women, a book about how women can apply Machiavelli's principles to their work lives to finally break the glass ceiling once and for all. Stacey's own experience with the gender pay gap inspired her to learn about the uphill battle women face in the working world. What Stacy found out is that while women's struggles in the workplace are a hot topic, not much has changed. Women are still paid less than their male counterparts and occupy fewer leadership positions. So Stacy wanted to find out how we could make true progress. And she found her answer in an unlikely place. The writings and musings of the Renaissance diplomat, author, and philosopher Niccolo Machiavelli. Now, even though Stacey's book is focused on women, the interview has insight that's relevant to both men and women, and the type of men that listen to Young and Profiting Podcasts are the type that are looking to empower women in the workplace and make positive changes. The first step towards change is awareness and knowledge, so please don't shy away from this episode if you're a man. I know more than half of my listeners are male, and once in a while, I do a women's-focused episode only when I know it'll be relevant and helpful to both men and women. In this episode, Stacey and I talk about how Machiavelli's teachings can be applied to marginalized groups in the workforce and discuss the realities of the gender pay gap. We also cover the repercussions of unconscious bias, the role men can play as allies and mentors, the Cinderella. Syndrome, negotiation tips, and so much more. If you're a woman looking to get fair pay or a promotion, or a man wondering how you can be an ally to your female colleagues, this episode is for you. Hey, Stacy, welcome to Young and Profiting Podcast. Thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Likewise. I'm super happy to be talking with you today. You are the co-host of NPR's The Indicator from Planet Money, and you're also an author. You just wrote your first book, Machiavelli for Women. And I think a great way to warm up this conversation is to take it way back to early in your career where you witnessed and experienced a lot of sexism in the workplace yourself. And in one case, you found out that you were being paid a quarter less than a male colleague who had fewer years of experience. So. Let's start off there. Can you tell us about that time in your life?
1: Yeah, this was kind of mid-career, so I'd been working for a little while. And I went into a job, and I negotiated really hard to get into the job, I thought. So I thought. I really thought I had, like, it had been a real struggle. It had been, like, kind of an unpleasant negotiation that had dragged on for many days. But, you know, I sort of thought, like, yes, I'm in the arena like a gladiator. And so I I got this salary that I thought was, like, was pretty good. And, you know, I'd really fought for it, so I felt very good about it. And then through, like, a couple of, like, sort of various accidents, like, kind of like things being left on the printer type of accidents, I found out that not—so the first thing I found out was that my colleague was getting—who had— basically the same amount, of, a couple of years fewer experience than I did was making like $20,000 more than I was. And like, I couldn't believe it. I felt so, oh my God. I, I still, I mean, I can still like, I still feel those emotions coming up even now as I'm talking about it. And then I found out, this is so embarrassing. I don't think I put this in the book. Then I found out that for the the position that I had Because um, they had, like, little salary bands for different positions. I was being paid the lowest possible amount, like, for my position. Like, I couldn't have gotten paid lower. And at this point, I had, like, many, many, many years of experience. And I was just... Oh, that was a terrible, terrible like couple weeks of my life when I was kind of dealing with this and digesting it. Whew. Yes.
0: <laughs> yeah, that must have impacted you significantly in terms of like you wanting to make a change and helping potentially other women not be in that situation. Cause a lot of the time it's just knowledge lack of knowledge lack of knowing what other people are getting paid and and people are really secretive about salaries especially in the corporate world it's sort of like this unspoken rule that you can't ask anybody about it and can't slack anybody about it and you're just stuck kind of blind hoping that you got paid the market rate. So it's super interesting. And we're definitely going to talk about negotiation tactics. But first, I want to talk about why this women in the workplace topic is more pertinent than ever. A lot of people think that it's kind of like we're past this and that gender equality is no longer a problem and it's 2022 and women are just equal. Why is that wrong? I know you have a lot of experience and have done a lot of research on this.
1: No, people have asked me that. They're like, isn't like, first of all, like gender kind of over? And second of all, like, you know, the, like we're kind of on to other things. And what I would say to that is that the data shows us that that is, in fact, definitely not the case. In fact, the whole reason that I wanted to write this book had to do with data. So um, I've been covering business and economics for almost 20 years. And, you know, when you're on the same beat like that, the same story comes up again and again. Sometimes you end up covering the same thing. So I had done a story. And when you were a woman covering business and economics, you end up doing a story on the gender pay gap like every year. (laughs) So I was doing my annual gender pay gap story. And I was talking to this economist, this really brilliant woman, Dr. Francine Blau, And she is like, really dug into the numbers. So the pay gap is that women make about 80 cents on the dollar compared to men. For Black women, it's 63 cents. And for Latina women, it is 55 cents. So within the gender pay gap, there are some huge gaps as well. And uh, Dr. Blau was, you know, talking me through it, and she just tossed off this remark. She was like, well, you know, these numbers haven't really moved in 20 years. And I was like, what? Because, you know, I'd been covering the economy for— not even that long. And I'd seen so much change, so much transformation, so much new businesses getting started. Women earning more law degrees than men, almost as many medical degrees, more and more business degrees. I think women start 40% of the businesses in the U.S. now. And I was like, how has that been stuck? And then I started looking into it, and all these things have been stuck for the last 10 years. CEOs are 80% male and 90% white. Those numbers have actually gotten slightly worse. I don't even know how this is possible. Oh, my gosh. Uh, I know. And then some. there's this number called the labor force participation rate. It gets super, super geeky, which is just the share of women who are in the workforce. That number hasn't moved in 10 years either. So something is stuck. And there was, like, pretty steady progress made since the 50s uh, as far as women getting into the workforce, breaking into new fields, earning more money, all those things. And then it just kind of, in the last 20 years, but really, really in the last decade, just kind of froze. and During the pandemic, of course, all sorts of these issues came to a head, and, you know, we went backwards a little bit. We lost, like, 30 years of progress as far as women in the workforce uh, during the pandemic. That's gotten a little better. But, but you know, still, I think I think you're absolutely right. It seems like these issues should be resolved, and it's like, can we please deal with the next thing? But they're not resolved, and I think there's a lot of stuff buried in there, including racism, including a lot of other different kinds of marginalized workers, and, yeah, So I I think that's all sort of wrapped in there.
0: Yeah. So women are in the workforce more than before, like more lawyers, more doctors, more women who are in IT, for example, but they're not in leadership positions, right? That's the key. They're not rising up to be the CEO. They're not, you know, given funding for their companies. They're not given that leadership. So why is that? I mean, we had Me Too, movement you'd think that that actually would help but it seemed like it actually hurt us so w- what went wrong
1: well that is like the many million dollar question i think that's right at the heart of it right because you're absolutely right women are breaking into all these fields women start 40% of the businesses and yet get 2% of the venture capital available so women are there but they're not rising through the ranks the way that you'd hope and it the i mean the part that really got me back to the story I was just telling earlier, was it's not getting better, really. I mean, in many ways it is getting better, but in some ways it's just not. So what's happening? I think there are a bunch of things happening. One big one that I think we've seen during the pandemic is child and family care. Women still do the lion's share of child care and housework. And a lot of times that Partly for that reason, women will prioritize flexibility in their jobs. And so if there's a job, what often happens if you get mid-career and above is that jobs kind of bifurcate to jobs that have more flexibility but maybe earn less have, like, a smaller potential and jobs that have less flexibility but have, like, a steeper trajectory into management positions and things like that. So you'll see this with, like, law partners, right? Or in medical school, becoming a certain kind of a surgeon. And women will often prioritize flexibility, and that will often mean that they are not on a track to become a CEO or, or an executive. Also, Becoming a manager is just a lot more complicated for women. All kinds of things come up. Women have a harder time managing. They're man- They're looked at more critically. They are way less likely to get management positions. And a lot of that has to do with how we are sort of the conflicting views of, of women leaders. There's like a big disconnect in our brains because there are the expectations that we have. And these are unconscious biases, by the way. Like I have them. Even the wokest among us have these inside of ourselves. It's part of why this is such a difficult problem to solve. We have our expectations as far as what makes a good woman and our expectations as far as what makes a good leader, and those two things— are not the same things. They're at odds. And so what happens when women get into leadership positions is if they display a lot of sort of traditionally feminine qualities or sort of feminine expectations, they're nurturing, modest, kind, warm, supportive, don't grab credit. They will be really well liked, but they're not going to get very far They're not going to be seen as leadership material. If they display a lot of leadership qualities, they're strong, they grab credit, they don't care too much what other people think, they're not afraid to speak up, they might get leadership positions, but people will not like them. And that becomes a big deal for upper echelon leadership positions, right? You see this a lot of times in female politicians where people sort of hate them on a level that is, like, not quite in line with, like, any— Actual facts. It's like, oh, I disagree with this person. on Like Hillary policy. Clinton
0: was like, totally so hate like Yeah,
1: so hate just the ire, you know. And it wasn't like, oh, I don't think she has great policies. It was like she's the worst, and Elizabeth Warren too. I think got a lot of that. So it's often like. So this is the issue that I think often will hold women back from leadership positions. Also, the flexibility thing is a big one. And we saw that really, really came to light during the pandemic, I think. Yeah.
0: So since we're on this topic, let's like dig deep on it. So you talk about this concept called hot boxing, which I think you just alluded to, right? Tell us what hot boxing is in the corporate world and what happens to women who are in that situation.
1: Yes, this is a baseball term that I only learned because I was shockingly terrible at baseball. But hotboxing, this happened to me one time, which is how I know about the term, is on a T ball team. When you have someone running between bases, and let's say you're running between second and third base, and someone throws the third baseman the ball. So you turn back to go to second base, and you're running back to second base, but the third baseman throws the second baseman the ball. So the second baseman now has the ball. So you turn to run back to third, and the second baseman throws the third baseman the ball. So you're basically running between these two bases. You're not technically out, but you're not going to win. And for me, that metaphor kept coming into my mind, which is why I ended up using it. Plus, I was like, it's a book called Machiavelli for Women. We probably need some baseball metaphors in here. So but it, but I think it happens between like leadership qualities and quote unquote feminine qualities and It is just a really, really difficult thing. Women run into this all the time when they're asking for raises. There's often backlash. There are feelings of, and again, these are unconscious. It's people who are often extremely well-meaning, progressive people, but they're like, wow, who does she think she is? That's a little greedy. Whereas if a guy asks for more, even if he doesn't get it, often there will be a case of like, you know what? Good for him for asking. We're not giving him a raise, but good for him for asking. So women are in this difficult situation where, if you sort of behave in a way that will sort of the traditional ways that move you along in a company, that get you more money, that get you higher positions, you'll run into issues of backlash and people not liking you. And that is, a, that is real consequences. And then if you sort of are more sort of likable and traditionally feminine, you're not going to get anywhere in the workplace past a certain point. So it's it's a... I, I thought the met the baseball metaphor was apt in this case.
0: Yeah, it's like kind of like you're trapped. Like there's no forward movement for a long, long, long time. So I was in this situation. I used to work at Disney streaming services. Now I'm an entrepreneur, I quit my job about a year ago. Sixty employees. Everything's going great. But I was in Disney, and I had you know, gotten recruited there. I had done very well in my career previously. I got promoted five times and I got to Disney and I felt like stagnant. Like there was no way I would ever become an executive, ever get in the C-suite. And I was like, there's nowhere to go. You know what I mean? It was a boys club. So I, I do see what Which you're... is
1: nuts considering how huge that company is. You should have been seeing a million opportunities. Exactly. But I, someone like you. But I
0: didn't because to your point, I was, I was high enough- that was where the ceiling was. You know what I mean? It's like, I, I could feel it. Like there was just nowhere to, there was nowhere to go. It was like the next stage was a 60-year-old white man. There was no way I was going to take his job. You know what I mean? So it was like that kind of a stuck feeling. And so I do see what you mean, like that middle management is where you could kind of get stuck as a woman. So talk to us about why male qualities are aligned with leadership and why feminine qualities are kind of the opposite and what we can do about that in the workplace as women.
1: I mean, I think it's just our ideas, our old ingrained ideas of what a leader looks like, how a leader acts. And these are just like cultural stories, right? I mean, and those stories can change. We change our stories all the time. But those are very, they're very powerful, those stories that underlie a lot of these things. It's like, you know, you think leader, you know, maybe images of like General Patton or the Godfather or whatever come into your mind. It's probably not like a young black woman. That's probably not the image that comes into your mind when you think leader, even if you wish it were. And these are just—these are deeply, deeply ingrained. Actually, Harvard University has this great unconscious bias test you can take online where it has you click on things really fast. And I took one in the middle of writing this book thinking like, well, this isn't even fair because I'm thinking about these issues and reading all these studies. And I just— I was so mortified at the own my own unconscious biases, but they're just in our heads, like what a woman should be. We absorb them through movies and TV and stories and just the world that we see around us. You know, kids are like little sponges, and so are we. And this just has these reverberations when we get into a company, and it affects our decisions in all kinds of ways. I, I had a boss who always used to say, like, I trust my gut, I trust my gut. And I've thought about that so many times because I think our guts are messing us up because that's where a lot of that bias is like, I don't know. I just feel like Ralph would be able I don't know. He just seems like he'd be a better manager. You know, a lot of things are probably going into that gut feeling, which is why a lot of ways to get around these unconscious biases are often like sort of more strict processes, right? Like – Well, the person we hire for this job has to have these qualifications, like to get gut feelings out of it, because I think a lot of our unconscious biases are in our gut feelings. And so when you take it out of that, out of the realm of feelings and into the realm of facts and take emotion out of it a little bit, which is... I mean, Machiavelli is like big advocate of that, right? Get get your feelings out of the way and sort of look at things in a more concrete way. That's where a lot of biases start to go away. That's a great way to start to address these problems. But there was a great study that Dr. Claudia Golden did from Harvard. She's an amazing researcher and economist, but it was for orchestras. So there was a big problem in orchestras where most of the people getting the parts were men. And it's very, very competitive, the orchestra world. And her idea was to put up a screen so that people would audition behind a screen and you couldn't see what the person looked like. And I think it increased the number of women getting hired by 250 percent. But it was just a way, you know, its just like a simple thing to take that thing off the table. And once it was off the table— you know, people could rise or fall on their merits, which is what we all want. We want people to be able to rise and fall on their merits.
0: Yeah. So one more question about leadership as a female and a male. What happens when women do display leadership qualities? Talk about how that kind of backfires for some women.
1: People will—there's just sort of this feeling of, like, who does she think she is? And that is a very powerful feeling— People have more complaints about female leaders. Their leadership is questioned more often. I mean, I've seen this anecdotally in the workplace a bunch of times, you know, like a man will make a decision that people sort of wonder about, and that's one thing. And if a woman makes a decision that people question, it's like, well, is she competent? Why is she here? There's always this underlying feeling of of competence. And in fact, the reason that I liked Machiavelli for my book so much was that the premise of his book, he said there are two kinds of princes. There's the inheriting prince and the conquering prince. The conquering prince is like just taking over a new land. He says for the inheriting prince, things are pretty easy. You know, everybody knows who he is. He's the status quo. Everybody's, you know, like, oh, that guy. Yeah, he's the leader. For a conquering prince, he says, and Machiavelli says for him, things are pretty easy. And for him to lose his power, he really, really has to mess up. Now, he says, for a conquering prince, difficulties abound. He's new to this land. People are like, what is he doing here? Why are we following this guy's rules? Who is he? Who does he think he is? And I feel like that's such a great proxy for women or other marginalized workers in the workplace. Like, we're in the workplace, in all the fields, but our power, our place there is being questioned all the time. So I think that's a lot of what's going on. It's just like people, it's nothing concrete. I think that's why it can be so difficult to address. It's people saying like, I mean, no one said to you at Disney, you can't go past this point. You're never going to replace the 60-year-old white guy. It's just this feeling that you got. And I think that feeling was probably true. It was like, but you were getting it in a million different ways from a million little things. You just knew there is a ceiling here. I need to strike out on my own. A lot of people probably would not have been that courageous because it takes a lot of guts to, like, jump into the unknown like that, darkness and dragons and everything. So a lot of people would have just been like, okay, this is probably as far as I can get. And I think that is a really—but, you know, and, and nothing is spoken. Nothing's explicit. They would never say
0: that. 100%. Yeah, nobody said that. Um, So you're totally right. I'd love to switch gears and kind of not really switch gears. Let's talk about Machiavelli for women. So that's your new book. It was inspired by Machiavelli's The Prince that was written in the 16th century by Italian diplomat and political theorist Niccolo Machiavelli. And it was originally intended as an instruction guide for new princes and royals. So the book is super infamous now. Lots of politicians and powerful leaders kind of swear by it. But from my understanding, it really wasn't that well received back in the day like it is now. So can you take us through a little history- lesson and tell us about Machiavelli and the prince
1: oh yes it's very unlike people I think the most common question I get about the book is like why on earth did you pick Machiavelli like is was he like secretly a feminist and the no he was not anywhere nothing like a feminist Uh, he was essentially so this was back before Italy was one country it was a bunch of little city states and Machiavelli was basically like the secretary of state for Florence and Florence was an important city, like Leonardo da Vinci was there. It was a sort of an important—the Medici's were there. It was a big banking center. But they didn't have an army, and they were pretty little. Meanwhile, so they just didn't have a lot to fight with. So Machiavelli had to, like, wheel and deal with all these people. It was a time of great war. Everyone was always invading each other, lots of bloodshed. So Machiavelli was always just using his wits to try to protect little Florence. And he loved it. He was really good at it. His coworkers loved him. He was a little bit of a stretch for the job. Like, he didn't come from the right family. Uh, He didn't come from a good family. But somehow he got the job. And he was very smart and loved it. And then the Medicis took over the city again. So basically, there was a power shift. And Machiavelli lost his job. He was thrown in prison and tortured. All of his stuff was taken away. And then he was kind of kicked out of town. And it was from there that he wrote The Prince. He was in exile. And he wrote The Prince to the guy who had, like, done all this stuff to him, taken out, Lorenzo de Medici. He wrote, you know, in the beginning of The Prince, I remember when I read it being so confused because it's this weird apology in the beginning. It's like, dear Lorenzo de Medici, like, you're amazing. You're the best. Like, if you even have time to read my crappy thoughts, here they are. And I was like— this is this book about, like, power that, like, it it just seemed so amazing to me. But he was basically hoping that he would put these amazing ideas forth. And Lorenzo de' Medici would read this book and be like, you know what? We're hiring this guy back. I don't care if he worked for the other regime. He's so brilliant. But that didn't happen. People read the book. And, you know, Machiavelli's whole premise— Basically, was, and I think the reason that it's infamous and the reason that it's timeless are the same reason, which is that he sort of removes emotion and morality from things. It's totally tactical, like a chessboard. So he's looking at everything as like, okay, you want to get here? What are the different ways to get here? What's in your way? All of this. And when you take away morality and you take away emotion, it does make it timeless, right, because morals shift and laws shift and things like that. Uh, but it also makes it, like, kind of chilling, right? Like, there's one point in the book when he says, you know, if, if you wrong someone, you should probably kill them so that they're not hanging around hating you and plotting against you. And, like, that's probably, like, solid tactical advice, but it's also, like, not, you know. So, anyway, the Catholic Church freaked out when they saw this, and they basically threatened to excommunicate anyone who owned the book, so that was very hard on sales, probably. And poor Mac- I think Machiavelli was just completely shocked at how infamous his book became. I mean, he was just sort of, I mean, he lost everything. And then I think he lost even more. He, you know, he was like this wretched soul. I think he just thought like, oh, I'm going to write this smart book and it's going to be this hot take. And then he basically got himself Sixteenth century canceled, you know. I mean, he really was. That's so
0: interesting. And you look, you you would think that he was so successful when he was alive, but turns out like he really wasn't. And it was until after he died, people appreciated his work. Or I think,
1: right? Yeah, no, that's really true. I think he, you know, he he came back a little bit. Like as time passed, he got some jobs again, and he started writing some plays and some poetry, and he got it back a little bit of his status, but nothing like he'd had, and. Yeah, he died in his 50s, and I think he was pretty convinced that... I think he would be shocked if he knew that people still read his work.
0: Yeah, it's pretty incredible. So you read his book a hundred times. You obviously took a liking to it. So what would you say in his defense? I
1: mean, he gets kind of a bad rap. What would you say in his defense? I would say that he... I find his advice incredibly valuable because he just looks at things with very, very, like, clarity. And for something like exclusion and discrimination in the workplace or even just like unfair behavior in the workplace which everyone experiences someone getting favoritism or getting unfairly passed over all that stuff it can be a very emotional experience and that emotion in certain cases can give you energy right like anger can kind of energize you to act but in a lot of cases it just it makes it really hard to figure out what to do it clouds your judgment it takes your all your energy away it causes you to make strange decisions or act in ways that you feel weird about later. And I think Machiavelli's essential advice is just very, very smart. I mean, he was dealing with, you know, a lot of a lot of tumult and a lot of violence and a lot of crazy emotions and alliances uh, when he was alive. And I think he developed just a very keen wit. Like, he could clearly see through emotions and all you know all the sort of theater that happens and the workplace you know is is hopefully not as violent as that but you know there's a lot of stuff going on right people's vanity people's pride People have all kinds of reasons for promoting and supporting or demoting and not supporting the people that around them. And I think the ability to look at things in in a very clear-eyed way, there's just a lot of wisdom there. I mean, some of the advice, like I said, is kind of like shocking and chilling. And But I, I liked that Machiavelli was like not afraid of uncomfortable advice. And I really tried to follow that in my book, too. There was a lot of advice that I gave that I— didn't like to give, but I liked the Machiavelli had that courage. And, and I liked that he was like, this isn't great, but it's how humans operate.
0: Let's hold that thought and take a quick break with our sponsors. Young and profiters. They may call me the podcast princess, but I'm also the LinkedIn queen. I've been a LinkedIn influencer for six years now, and I teach one of the most popular courses about LinkedIn. And I love to teach sales Give us some examples of that cringy advice that in your own words, you say like you're giving some cringy advice, but it's for a good reason because it's going to change progress for women in the workplace. So give us some examples of some of that advice.
1: Uh, I can give you like a a mildly cringy one and a super cringy one. So the mildly cringy one comes back to the first thing that we talked about, which is when I found out that my coworker was making $20,000 more than I was. I... Freaked out, started to cry, went into my boss's office. I mean, just I—it's like I did everything wrong. Looking back, everything wrong. And he was like, "Well, what do you want?" And I didn't even know because I hadn't even thought it through. I just cried and said how upset I was and how unfair this was. And I did end up getting a raise, but like, I just—I'm—I really have a lot of regret about every part of how I handled that situation. Uh, although I was right, you know, I was right to be upset for sure. The advice that I would give now is, like, think about what you want. you Like, now I have all this information, which is very powerful. I know that there's this money on the table for this job, and I know I have, like, a little bit of an edge because there's, like, some guilt, right? So, okay, what do I want? How can I move forward? What should I ask for like to strategize a little bit. One of the pieces of advice in the book is not to, I mean, it was very emotionally satisfying for me to march in there and be like, this is wrong, how dare you, this is sexism. I would not counsel myself to do that now. I'm like, don't make him feel bad, that's not gonna be helpful. There's something a little cringy about that, right? Where it's like, don't make the person who is basically treating you in a discriminatory way, feel bad about discriminating against you, make them feel good and then ask them for something. I mean, that is essentially the advice I give in the book where I'm like, go in, paint a picture of the future you want with this company, how excited you are. Say, like, I know this is a really fair place. So, you know, I, and I know what this company pays for this job. I know what my colleagues are making. So I think a, a salary of X is more comfortable. So I'm basically saying, like, don't call your boss out onto the carpet.
0: Yeah, take your emotions out, play the game.
1: Yes, and there is something that I don't like about that, you know, I mean, it, you should be able to go in and be like, what the hell is this? Like, why are you paying this guy more? You know this is unfair, you know, just to, just to call it out. It's like justice. I don't think that's necessarily the smartest way to get what you want, so I don't give, I advise against that, but I don't feel great about it. that. You know, you're basically appeasing the person who messed up. Which isn't my favorite. But then there's, like, the super cringy advice, which was really hard for me to give. I would say the most shocking research that I found when I was doing the book was around motherhood. So I don't have kids, and I I just didn't understand how bad the discrimination against mothers is. The pay gap between women without children and women with children is larger than the gender pay gap. When women have kids, like, there's just this raft of discrimination comes. Like, their work is looked at more critically. They're paid less. Their opportunities for promotion basically dissolve to almost nothing. And a lot of women the years following having a child will drop out of the workforce because of this. A lot of women who have the option to, the financial option to drop out, will drop out. And so I was looking at, okay, great. Like, what are some solutions for this? And the solutions, like, made me feel like a monster. Like, one of them is to— check in before you go on maternity leave and basically act like you're going on a business trip. Be like, great, well, I'll be back in May and I'll hope to pick up the Jones project when I'm back. And really establish that you are coming back and that you're serious about your job. That's not so bad. The other one is to not talk about your child when you get back. Don't talk about the fact you're going to have a child. Don't talk about your child or show pictures of your child or mention that you were up all night with your child. Because... I mean, this is terrible advice, right? I mean, you've had a baby, you've brought a creature into the world, you should be yelling it from the rooftops, right? But it can cause people to sort of slot you into this stereotype. So that was one of the pieces of advice I gave. The other piece of advice for mothers is when you get back from maternity leave, and this is, of course, at a moment when the baby's not sleeping and you're trying to figure out childcare and all this stuff is going on in your life, like big life things. To basically work as if you have no baby, just like work as hard as you can, right, when you get back, because people are poised to slot you into this mommy track or take you off of important projects or, I mean, it's like a very critical time. So that, those are pieces of advice I gave that really made me cringe and that I did not like giving at all.
0: Yeah, but it's in their best interest to follow that advice if they want to grow their careers. So I have a lot of male listeners and I feel like a lot of males listening in might feel really terrible hearing that like women have to think this way or women have to, you know, hide the fact that they have a child so they don't get treated differently. What would you say to them if if they want to help, if they want to get involved? Uh, what would you say to the men listening in?
1: I think being an ally is such a powerful thing. I mean, obviously, this conversation that we're having isn't a very useful conversation if there are no men at the table. We need everybody at the table. Also, the workplace is not easy for anyone. You know, it is a hard—like, careers are hard. They're challenging. Life is hard and challenging. And some of the most inspiring stories that I heard in the book did come from men basically stepping forward to be allies for women. In one case, and this is, I think, something that people can really do, there was a woman who was at a a company and there was a a man who started as an intern and then was promoted to her level. She was just starting out. And she said he was doing this great job and she really liked him, but then he got promoted past her. And she wasn't sure what was going on, but she's like, I'm going to work so hard that I'm going to get promoted to his level. And it just wasn't happening. It wasn't happening. And he came to her at one point and said, You do really awesome work. I think this workplace isn't fair. Let me tell you what my experience has been. And he walked her through. He was totally open with how much money he'd been offered initially, what he was making, that they had just come to him with this promotion. And that information, I mean, the reason negotiation can be so hard is is you know what economists will call asymmetrical information, right? The company is what everybody makes, you know what nobody makes. And this guy basically single-handedly made the playing field even. She went to her boss with this info, armed with this information and was able to eventually get a promotion and a raise. But the fact that he was so open for no reason other than he was just being a good person is huge. I would say, like, even in meetings, often women will get talked over. This is a much bigger problem for women of color. They'll get talked over. Their ideas will be forgotten, ignored, or stolen. Something really small, like, oh, you know, Patrice's idea is great. That's a great idea. Or like, oh, you know, yeah, I agree. We should do that, and we should, you know, for this, this, and this reason, or to give, to acknowledge credit for someone in a meeting, to tell them you think an idea is really great. Like, those things, especially in public, can be very, very powerful. And, you know, just to, to reach out to people who are doing good work, who seem to be struggling, especially now, I feel like a lot of us are so siloed. If you're working from home, it can be a very isolating experience just to reach out a little bit and to be aware that you have... Listen, we all have unfair advantages and unfair disadvantages. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's not anybody's fault. But to realize maybe some of the power that you do have and to, like, use it to help people, I think. I mean, one of my friends who's an economist uh, who loves data was trying to figure out what to ask for when she was asking for a raise. So she was doing all this research to figure out what other people made. And she said, and I'm quoting her, she said, I just started reaching out to, like, random white guys on LinkedIn who worked at similar companies asking them what they made. And she said she had an over an 80% response rate of men who were getting back to her, who would talk to their colleagues and gather data for her to give her data. And she said people seemed so excited to help. And I think just even that openness is so valuable, so important, and will help make a workplace that will be good for everybody. Because discrimination isn't good for men either. You get incompetent people into leadership positions, man, that trickles down and affects everybody.
0: Yeah, 100%. And there's so many good men out there who want to be an ally, who want to make change happen. So this actually reminded me of something in your book when you talked about mentors. And you said that it was pretty hard for for women to get mentors. And a lot of the people who are in these high level positions who you want to be mentored by are men. And these men are actually afraid of mentoring women because they just you know, don't want to walk that fine line, so to speak, because they're afraid of being accused of sexual harassment or whatever it may be. And when I was in corporate, I felt very hindered by the fact that I felt like no males wanted to be my mentor, especially as like a young sort of like attractive woman. It was very intimidating for men to want to be my mentor. They always just... Like, kind of weren't interested. Actually, my first male mentor was like this year, Jordan Harbinger is my, my, he's like a very popular podcaster. He's my mentor, and I talk to him every day. That's the first male mentor I ever had in my life. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on this.
1: That is such an important point. And this is especially important in fields where there aren't a lot of women in powerful positions, I think it's hard for everybody, right? I feel like, and I've heard this directly from men who are like, I don't want to mentor a woman because I don't want people looking at me kind of like with their eyebrow raised. Like, why does he, like, taking the pretty young thing out to coffee? Ugh. I mean, I think one thing is to just, if you see someone whose work is great, I would just encourage or or someone who you want to mentor, someone reaches out to you, be open to it. And and I would say what I recommend in the book and, and I guess what I would also recommend to men is just think about what boundaries you can put around that that will make it comfortable. Like maybe you guys always meet for coffee in public. Maybe it's just Zoom or the phone. It doesn't have to be in a weird gray area. And of course, a lot of mentorships traditionally have been in kind of a gray area. I know so many women in journalism and broadcast, myself included, that have had, there's like a mentor, who's like a little flirty or whatever it is, even if, you know, nothing explicitly happens, but there's sort of like, there's like a gray area there. Like, I feel like that has, maybe doesn't have to, but I would like to acknowledge that that is just something that's kind of often in the fabric of these relationships. But I think it can be really problematic in perception and in reality. So, you know, just draw boundaries around them. So like for women, I suggest like meet for coffee, like even meet in the office, in Starbucks. I mean, there's like literally nothing sexy about Starbucks in the afternoon. So you could just go to Starbucks or go somewhere that's like not chart. like maybe instead of going for a drink or something. But that is a huge issue. I mean, because mentorship is probably the most powerful thing. People ask me like, what's the one thing I can do at work to like really help people and move the needle? And I would say it's mentoring because it's so, especially... A lot of times, like a lot of women or people of color, other marginalized workers will start out in a field and they'll leave because they just don't feel welcome or they don't see a place for themselves. And I think mentoring someone can make a path for somebody. I mean, I think it can be so powerful, like just saying, like, that was a great idea in that meeting. I mean, that is probably, you know, that could be something someone remembers in 15 years because at those initial moments when someone's trying to see a path for themselves. I mean, think of yourself at Disney You did not see a path. If one of the 60-year-old white men (laughs) had reached out to you and been like, you know what? Like, that was an amazing idea. I really think you have a future here you might not have left. I mean, it's probably a good thing that you did leave and now you have this no, awesome business that No, but you're you
0: started. 100% true. I never thought I was going to leave corporate before I was at Disney. I always thought I would just become a CMO or the CEO of whatever company I was at and just stay there for years. So you're right if somebody did take me under their wing, but nobody did that. So I was like, I'm out.
1: <laughs> and I'm sure a lot of the reason was that like, well, she's like a young, lovely woman and I don't want to raise any eyebrows and I just don't want to get into all that or whatever. And if if you'd been a guy, uh, it might have been really different.
0: 100%. And in fact, there was a lot of male colleagues who were getting kind of like treated like the pet uh, to the executive. So I definitely see that. Taking play, so let's go back to Machiavelli because you're an expert on his work, and it's pretty interesting that his work is still relevant five hundred years later in this modern world. So I'd love to understand some key observation that Machiavelli made about human nature that still hold true today,
1: yes, actually, this was like one of the funny things that like it's very obvious, but it like sort of blew my mind when I thought of how much has changed in five hundred years, like they didn't have electricity or. The combustion engine, the light bulb, airplane travel, antibiotics. Like, all this stuff has changed, but people are, like, the same. All the observations he made, I'm like, oh, yeah. Machiavelli's a little cynical about people. Granted, he was writing this book at a very difficult time for himself, so, you know, a little cynicism was warranted. But he does have some just very clever pieces of advice. One, this one is 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 a little bit of a silver lining, Machiavelli. It's not quite as dark, but one thing he said was, if you ask someone, you should not hesitate to ask someone for a favor, because when you ask someone for a favor, they feel as indebted to you as if they had taken a favor from you. Which, as someone who has trouble asking for favors or asking people to do things for me or book promotions, a lot of reaching out to people for favors, so I was thinking about that a lot at the time and. That really struck me, and I thought it through, and I was like, he's right, because when someone comes to you for a favor, it makes you feel powerful and connected and like you're on the right path. You know, like people are coming to you for advice and help, and it makes sense you'd feel grateful to them for that feeling and want to have that feeling again and feel indebted to someone for making you feel good. I thought that was such a smart insight, another insight that Machiavelli gives, I'm giving all the really positive ones, but he says a a good prince will always stand up for those less powerful than he is to a greater authority. And and the reason being that you're not going to be, the backlash you get from the greater authority isn't going to be that big of a deal. And the gratitude that you will get from the people you are standing up for is very powerful. And I think that's true. I mean, I was thinking of very early on in my career, Kai Rizdahl, as a matter of fact, at Marketplace, um, I was just a underling. I, something happened at the company. I can't remember what happened, but somehow I was in trouble for something that I had done at Marketplace. And Kai Rizdahl went to the boss and was like, I was and, and was just like, you need to leave her alone about this. And I found out about it through like a third party. He had no reason to intervene on my behalf at all. And he just did. And I found out about it from somebody else. And I still remember that every time someone brings Kai up to me, my brain goes there first. I was just like, loyal forever, like ride or die because of that moment. You know, I was so, it moved me so much that someone would stand up for me at a moment that it wasn't advantageous to them. So that just like thinking through something like that I was, you know, when when I read that for Machiavelli, I was like, he's right. That is powerful. I mean, it's been almost 20 years, and I think still think about that with Kai. Um, I'm like, Kai Rizdahl, that guy's a good guy. He stood up for me when there was no reason to do that. I mean, you know, and and it probably politically didn't cost him very much. And the boss probably thought, like, oh, he's a good guy. He's standing up on behalf of, like, his little puny production assistant. And meanwhile, it was a very powerful thing for me. So those are a couple pieces of like just very smart Machiavellian advice. And oh, you know, one that is still interesting. I didn't include this in the book, but it was very interesting. He said, basically, the person who helps another person gain power is ruined, which I thought was really interesting. The idea being that like, if you put, and I feel like this is often something women will do, which is like, well, like I don't, think I can go for this position myself, but I'm going to help Ralph go for it. Like, I'm going to become the power behind the throne, essentially, right? And I think it's very—women often get roped into supporting roles a lot of times. The reason Machiavelli thought that this was a dangerous thing was he's like, the person who you helped get into power is always going to be a little freaked out by you because they know how important you are, and they're going to be worried— that you see through them and also, like, what they're going to be able to do without you. So they're never going to support you. They're never going to want you to leave or promote you into a greater position. And I I thought that was very interesting, too, just looking at media. um, That's the world that, of course, I'm the most familiar with. And just seeing people who helped other people get, like, big, fancy jobs and what happened to them. It's just, like, a very smart observation, I thought.
0: Yeah, it is. I feel like I've seen that happen a lot too. So let's talk about the definition of power because I think this is pretty interesting. Talk to us about your definition of power and Machiavelli's power principle.
1: Well, this was one of the first things I did. Of course, this is just like the most public radio thing I could do. I was like, I have to look up the etymology of the word power (laughs) like a middle school essay. But it it was actually very useful. I almost didn't put it in the book because I was like, this is like one of those bad wedding speeches where someone's like, Webster's Dictionary defines marriage. But it was very useful to me. So power comes from the French poire, which means to be able. And that was a really important moment for me in the book because the idea of just power, like crushing people, bending them to your will, making oceans of money, that just didn't, like, I didn't really connect with that. Like, I don't want those things for myself. And I feel like most people probably don't also. I mean, you know, there are the Vladimir Putins of the world, but but most of us are not like that, I don't think. But the idea of to be able— to want power, to give yourself, to have agency, to be able to do what you want in the workplace, to rise on your merits in the workplace, to be able to do the work you want to do. That definition of power I could really connect with. That felt important. That felt like something that I think most of us do want is that agency, that ability to I want to see what I can do. I want to do my best work. I want to be in an arena where I'm inspired and creating at the top of my game. And so that is why I included it, because I thought that was a really, for me, it was like a little bit of a revelation as far as what power was. I'd never really put that much thought into it, which is weird, because all I've been doing is covering business and economics. And if there is a field in this world that is more obsessed with power than business and economics, I've never encountered it. But... You know, if that felt really that I connected with that a lot.
0: Something else that I found super interesting in your book that I never heard of before, I think you might have coined the phrase the Cinderella syndrome. I would love for you to talk about that analogy and share that little story with us.
1: I felt like, you know, I've been talking about a prince, and so it was time to like invoke a princess. So the Cinderella syndrome is something that happens to women often at the beginning of their careers. So it's like before a first promotion and something that I've certainly observed but it's also been documented in research, is that uh, men will often be promoted based on their potential, and women will be promoted based on what they've produced. So women, get they get slowed down in promotions, and this really slows them down, especially early on. And what happens is there's this, you know, there's people have their gut feelings, right? It's like, I don't know if she's really ready for this role. And so the Cinderella syndrome, it comes from the story of Cinderella. There's this one moment in the fairy tale where Cinderella wants to go to the ball and she asks. And of course, the stepmother has her two stepdaughters that she needs to marry off. And Cinderella is much cuter than the two stepdaughters and she does not want Cinderella going to the ball. So Cinderella's like, oh, can I go to the ball? And the stepmother does not tell her no. She says, of course you can go. I just need you to clean the banisters and polish all the silver and mow the lawn and scrub the floor and clean the hearth and all those things. So Cinderella's like, okay, I'm going to do it. And she gets to work on all this stuff. And I felt like this is exactly what happens to women in the workplace or to anyone in the workplace who's in a situation where there's no advancement really in sight. People aren't going to say, like you at Disney, they're not going to be like, listen, you're never getting a promotion. This is as high as you can go. Instead, they're like, hmm, we're not sure you're ready for that, but why don't you do these 80 things we need you to do? A lot of them may be not the most desirable tasks, right? Women often will get stuck in with a, what uh, the wonderful researcher Jonesy Williams calls office housework. But like, we're just going to need you to do all this stuff, and then maybe we'll consider you for a promotion. And I feel like that can be a real trap in the workplace for women and for any worker where You really don't have a path forward, but no one's going to say that. Instead, they're going to be like, oh, we need you to do these 80 really useful things, and then we'll talk about what you want. And that's a very dangerous trap. What would
0: Machiavelli say to anybody who has an evil stepmother telling them to do more work and dangling the carrot in front of their face?
1: I cannot even now pretend to speak for Machiavelli. He was much smarter in the ways of human nature than I am, but I imagine— Let's see, what advice would I give? Okay, evil stepmother. I would advise, like, figure out what you want out of the situation, right? And then figure out, like, what the stepmother wants. In the case of Cinderella, what she should have realized is that the stepmother does not want her to go to the ball under any circumstances because she's going to, like, pull focus away from her two horrible stepdaughters. And so... Anything she lays out is going to be an impossibility. So in that case, I would maybe, like, not ask the stepmother and just go. Because you have to realize that, like, her motivations are going to be in direct, direct contradiction to what Cinderella wants to do. And that no amount of—she's it's not going to be—she's not the kind of person who's going to be like, well, we did make a deal, so— it's in the name evil. You've got, to, you've got to pay attention to these things. So, yeah, I, and then I would say, like, in that case, because Cinderella, for some reason, doesn't seem to have that much power in the household, you've got to, like, sneak off. You've got to use subterfuge.
0: We'll be right back after a quick break from our sponsors. Young and Profiters, Yap Media is growing so fast. I have 10 open roles just this month. Again, it's indeed.com slash profiting to get your $75 credit. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, App Fam. Starting my LinkedIn Secrets Masterclass was one of the best things I've ever done for my business. I didn't have to waste time figuring out all the nuts and bolts of setting up a website that had everything I needed, like a way to buy my course, subscription offerings, chat functionality, and so on, because it was super easy with Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your first product, finally taking your side hustle full time, or making half a million dollars from your masterclass like me. And it doesn't matter if you're selling digital products or vegan cosmetics. Shopify helps you sell everywhere from their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system. Shopify has got you covered as you scale. Stop those online window shoppers in their tracks and turn them into loyal customers with the internet's best converting checkout. I'm talking 36% better on average compared to other options out there. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the US from huge shoe brands like Allbirds to vegan cosmetic brands like Thrive Cosmetics. Actually, back on episode 253, I interviewed the CEO and founder of Thrive Cosmetics, Carissa Bodnar, And she told me about how she set up her store with Shopify and it was so plug and play, her store exploded right away. Even for a makeup artist type girl with no coding skills, it was easy for her to open up a shop and start her dream job as an entrepreneur. That was nearly a decade ago. And now it's even easier to sell more with less thanks to AI tools like Shopify magic. And you never have to worry about figuring it out on your own. Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way so you can focus on the important stuff, the stuff you like to do, because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com profiting, and that's all lowercase. If you want to start that side hustle you've always dreamed of, if you want to start that business you can't stop thinking about, If you have a great idea, what are you waiting for? Start your store on Shopify. Go to shopify.com slash profiting now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Again, that's shopify.com slash profiting. Shopify.com slash profiting for $1 per month trial period. Again, that's shopify.com slash profiting. So let's talk about negotiation advice for women. So I was actually listening to an interview with you where you said that this book was really inspired from you getting some bad negotiation advice, and that really triggered you to kind of look into good negotiation advice, and that's kind of how you re-stumbled upon Machiavelli's work. So talk to us about that bad negotiation advice and some good advice that women can follow in terms of negotiation.
1: Yes. Well, I sort of alluded to this earlier, but I had been really bad at negotiation. Like like epically bad. And the worst part was I was try- I wasn't like I wasn't trying. I was really trying. All my negotiations always just went so badly. There was just all this bad feeling in the end and I almost never got much for my pains. It was like all the downside and none of the upside and I sort of kept slogging in thinking like, well this This is the way. And so I would read all these negotiation books that were like, you need to demand your worth. You need to firmly, you know, you need to make them name the number first. You need to challenge their premises. You need to be ready to walk away. All of these things. And it just, it not only didn't work, it like completely backfired. Negotiations did not go well. And. When I was researching the book, I, I remember thinking—I feel like there's all the, often this emphasis on, like, well, women don't negotiate, which is actually true. Women, I think, negotiate one time for every five times a man negotiates. I think the reason for that, though—and I just kept thinking, like, yeah, but when I negotiate, it never works. And I think there, the what I was hitting up against was that if I negotiate and if, like— Ralph negotiates, and we use the same tactics, they're just going to be taken very differently. When women go into, it, like, a situation, like, when women behave in sort of an adversarial or confrontational way, they are seen in a much more—and which I was 100 percent doing—they're seen in a much more critical light than if men do it. If men do it, it's like, well, good for him. He's he's trying to get his. And if I do it, it's like, whoa, who does she think she is? Like, people feel angry, you know, and it's not like they mean to. It's not like, well, she's a woman and women don't deserve to get paid as much. It's just an innate response that comes up.
0: It goes back to that, like, women's qualities don't align to leader, leader qualities. It's the same thing. It's like you're you're going against your feminine energy, basically, when you negotiate. Yes.
1: Yes. That is exactly, exactly what it is. And so people, I would come away with this, people would come away from that feeling like, God, she's really pushy. Who does she think she is? And I would come away being like, I did all the things in the book. I don't understand. Even
0: other women feel that way.
1: Oh, yes. Yes. In fact, it was a really interesting moment in the book. I was interviewing this woman who works in academia and a lot of and oversees a lot of people, and she said when women she noticed that when women would come to her asking for a raise, she would get mad at them in a way that she wouldn't when men asked her for a raise. And she was horrified at this. She was like, what is wrong with me? I mean, she considered herself this big champion of women in the workplace, but she recognized that when men would ask her for a raise, even if, let's say, she didn't give it to anyone or gave it to everyone, she would come away feeling like the woman was like a little arrogant or pushy and grabby. And with the guy, it would be like, oh, yeah, he asked for a raise. I said no. There was none of that kind of bad feeling. So then I started looking at a lot of books written specifically for women. Dr. Linda Babcock at Carnegie Mellon has some great advice. She has a book called Women Don't Ask. She's done some really great research and just also approached a lot of researchers about, well, then what do you do, right? Like if asking for something is going to make people not like you, do you not ask? Do you ask and be not liked? Like it felt like this sort of impossible bind. But there are some ways around and through, which I was very excited to find out. One of the big ones, and the main one I recommend, is to just avoid at all costs the sort of mono a mano situation, like avoid anything adversarial, which seems impossible, right It's like it's a negotiation. you want hundred thousand dollars, they only want to pay you eighty. end of story, like if they pay you a hundred, you win. If they pay you eighty, they win. but instead, to focus on the a more collaborative approach because truly. Ideally, in a workplace, they are also giving you a lot. Like, I feel like I do a lot of work for NPR, and I've given them a lot of great work and and years, but they've given me a lot, too, is the truth. They've given me a really important platform. I get a lot out of that job, too. So to go in acknowledging that and say, you know what? I am really so excited to be here. I love working for this company because of X, Y, and Z reason. I'm especially excited about this project. I'm actually interested. I can really see a future for myself leading one of these teams, I'm really excited to talk about that as it develops in the future. I have done a lot of market research. I know what this company typically pays for the work I'm doing and what other companies, similar companies, pay for the work I'm doing. I also know that my productivity is up 15% over last year, and I'm the most productive member of my team. So I think a salary of $110,000 would be more appropriate than the 80 dollars that I'm getting paid. Uh, what do you think? So there's a lot happening there, right? One is you've painted a picture of a future. You're very positive. You know, one thing you can say is, like, I know this company is really fair and that fairness and equity is very important to this company. So that's part of why I'm asking. I think a salary of X is appropriate. You're saying lots of positive things. Like, I know you want to do the right thing. I love this company. I'm so excited about a future here. But it's also really important for me to feel like I'm being valued properly. Also, there's a lot of facts in there. And remember, like, we talked before about getting away from emotions where a lot of discrimination is and into facts. And that's so true in negotiations, too, I think. You you reach out to a lot of people, find out what you should be making. And in a lot of cases, the women I spoke with said, name your number first, because it so often happens. And this is a little controversial. You have to figure out what's right for you. And it it can mean you leave money on the table. But so often women or other marginalized workers will get lowballed that it can be hard to come back from that. You know it's like you go in and you're thinking a hundred thousand dollars and they say seventy, and it's like suddenly you're clawing your way back to which is exactly what happened to me by the way, when i clawed and clawed for days to get paid the lowest possible salary I could get paid. Oh, my God. I know. It's embarrassing. So I think, you know, you bring those facts in, you know, market research. It's not emotional. It's like, well, listen, I'm just looking at the numbers. I know what you pay for this work. So it's taking it out of emotional. You're painting a positive future. It's not antagonistic.
0: Yeah. And, and just so my listeners can help remember this, especially if you're a woman and you're gearing up for negotiation, think about future together instead of facing off. So take a future together approach rather than being aggressive and kind of facing off with your counterpart.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of the opposite of like, if you don't pay me this, I'll quit. It's like, look at this beautiful future we would have together. I will need to get paid X to be a part of this beautiful future. Yeah. It does kind of stink
0: that we can't just I know. be authentic.
1: <laughs> I know. I know. I know. No, you're right. I mean, you should be able to go in and be like, dude, why are you paying Ralph $100,000? I know what you're paying for this job. Like, pay me properly.
0: Yeah. But again, we have to play the game. It is what it is. So as we wrap up this interview, I thought a fun way we could end is with a quick fire segment. So you say that confidence is more valuable than competence in the workplace. Let's start off with that. Why do you think confidence is so important? And then we can do a rapid fire segment on some of uh, Machiavelli's lessons related to this.
1: Ooh, okay. I love rapid fire. Um, I'm also a little nervous about it. So confidence... All the studies show confidence is probably one of the most powerful things in the workplace, correlated to how happy you are, how much you get paid, how fast you get promoted, how much people like you, people like leaders that are more confident, all of these things. I think the reason it's so powerful is that value, the value of a person or a worker or the work itself is a story. Like, it's just a story. And confidence... Is a story. I mean, the reason women get paid less, the reason that Black women get paid less and Black men get paid less, it's just a story of how much their work is worth, which is also part of why it's so painful when you realize you're getting paid less. And confidence is also a story. It's the story of, like, I'm really awesome. And we operate on stories. Our whole economy operates on stories, but we as humans operate on collective stories. And if your story is like, I am amazing— and everyone's like, wow, he's amazing. I mean, there's also, like, arrogance, which is a little different. But true confidence is just a a deep knowing of self-worth. And that is infectious. People believe you. You know, that's... That you know, and of course, it's tricky, right? It's not like I don't want to be confident. <laughs> it's like I wanted to be cool in junior high, but all the wanting to be cool did not make it happen. Uh, but there are ways to fake confidence. That's a great
0: segue to our quick fire segment. So one of Machiavelli's lessons is to fake it till you make it. How can we do that?
1: One big thing you can do is to take action. Confident people act. Un- people who aren't confident waffle. So speak up in the meeting. Ask for a raise. Take action. That is something that is very confident. Another thing you can do is aim a little higher than what your goal is. So confident people expect a lot for themselves. So you can pretend that you're confident by asking for more than you think you can get as far as resources, money, time off, deadlines, space. Like, ask for something that feels nuts to you. That's a way to fake it till you make it. And how about
0: birds of a confident feather?
1: Yes, That's very powerful. So the people we hang around influence us a lot. So if you are around someone who's always like, oh, I I can't, even a really lovely person, but who's just like, oh, I'm never going to get this. I would ask for a raise, but I feel like I'm going to get fired. That's not great to be around if you're trying to, like, change your confidence level. You want to be around people who are confident, people who boost your confidence And that can be very helpful, too, because you can just sort of, you know, get little tips and also just kind of be in that energy, that confident energy. It's it's helpful.
0: Okay, and the last one related to this. Tell us about the easy
1: ask. Well, this is like just starting small. This is the idea that confidence is a muscle that you can build. So, you know, if you're like, there's no way I can go into my boss's office and say, like, listen, I need another assistant. Like, it's just not happening. Well, maybe when you're in Starbucks, you can be like, hey, can you please fill my coffee all the way up? Or ask, you know, can I have an extra week as for a deadline? I would like to take an extra week of vacation. Start asking for things. Start small. You can start really, really small. But just kind of get that little muscle going. Get used to asking for things. Get used to that little tension. Get used to the vulnerability of asking for stuff. Just start to build that up. Start small.
0: Yeah. As we wrap up this interview, I'd love to hear any sort of advice that you have for women and men in the workplace who want to improve all of this that we talked about today.
1: Well, I would have to say, and this is really a wonderful thing to be able to say. So there is a lot of just messed up stuff happening in our economy right now. It has been a really hard couple of years. But in all my almost 20 years of reporting, I've never seen a moment where workers have more power than they do right now. It is amazing. And not only power, I feel like there's this openness from companies because we've all had to find new ways of doing things and so many workarounds, workarounds for our workarounds that I feel like there's this openness to new ways of thinking about things and doing things. And I think this is a moment when you can craft not just asking for more money, which I absolutely think you can, but to figure out a work situation that's going to be make you happy, help you to grow in the ways you want to grow. I feel like this is a moment when you can kind of be creative and... Also, when workers are really kind of coming together with each other and saying, like, there's an awareness of some of the issues in the workplace and an awareness of, like, coming together to solve them. So I actually think this is a really special time for the workforce. It's hard. I mean, and it's also an incredibly hard time. I don't want to diminish that. But I think this is a really exciting moment to start reimagining your career, pushing for what you want, thinking about how... I think you can, like, almost write your own ticket a little, like, much more than you ever could before. You know, if you think, like, oh, I could never be a law partner because I could never put in those hours. I want to have a family. Well, is there a way that you could do both? Like, well, I guess I could work crazy hours three days a week if I could have two days off. You know, maybe there's a way. And I feel like companies are very open to that. And that feels exciting. That It feels like a moment of great change. Yeah, I'm glad that you're optimistic. That makes
0: me feel happy because you've got a lot of experience in this space. Well, Stacy, this was such a wonderful interview. We always end with a couple of the same questions for all of our guests. So what is one actionable thing our listeners can do today to become more profitable tomorrow?
1: Start asking other people in your company how much they make, I would say. Start those conversations because getting that, that uh, information out there, find out how much you can be asking for, yes.
0: And what is your secret to profiting in life?
1: My answer to this has changed a lot, actually, recently. Um, I think just because of all the things that we've been through. To profiting in life, I would just say to try to enjoy the things around you that you can enjoy in this moment. I mean, that's not exactly revolutionary advice, but I think I have gotten better and had to learn how to sort of adapt and enjoy whatever... Little benefits this moment has to offer, because I think it can be so easy to focus on, and there's just a lot of hard and difficult things to focus on. Just to be like, well, you know, it's kind of great that I'm home and talking to you from my broom closet, because you know, I can, you know, I can go on like a walk in the park, and I can meet my friend for coffee. And you know, as much as I miss my colleagues and being able to use an actual professional radio studio, (laughs) you know, this has a lot of advantages too. So, I think I've and that is not a natural mindset for me. I think I tend to focus on everything that's wrong naturally, but I think I've changed that. And in fact, I would that's like almost a good negotiation tactic too to focus on all the things you like about a company and why you want to move forward there. I think I've Machiavelli has made me into more of an optimist. That's very strange, but I think that's true. Wow.
0: Super interesting. And it's just like, it's about being grateful in the moment. That's basically what you're saying. Like be grateful in the moment, no matter, like look at the silver lining. So I love that. And where can our listeners go find more about you and what you do and where can they find your book, Machiavelli for
1: Women? Yes. Well, um, NPR, I'm still doing all kinds of business radio stuff on NPR. So NPR.org, you can look up my name and all the articles that I do come up. Also, I have a website, uh which has all the information about the book. And yeah, I mean, the book's available, everywhere books are available. And yeah, I think that's it.
0: Amazing. So I'll definitely stick all those links in the show notes. Thank
1: you so much for this awesome conversation. Thank you. It was really a, such a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: What an eye-opening episode with Stacy. A lot of us assume that because we're all aware of the gender pay gap and discrimination in the workplace that that means progress is being made. Unfortunately, this is not the case. Women still struggle to get into leadership positions and are still being paid less than their male counterparts. And there's so much we can take away from this episode. One thing right off the bat is that these tips take practice. Even Stacy, who's an expert in workplace negotiating, once struggled with standing up for herself. The more you practice negotiation and asking for what you want, the easier it will become. The idea of the easy ask is a great place to start. For a lot of women and people in general, asking for anything can be really difficult. Confidence in negotiation is like a muscle you can build up. Before you go asking for a $20,000 raise, start by practicing the small things like an extended deadline or like asking to take a vacation. This will help you gain the confidence you need and understand how to approach these situations when it matters the most. And what do you do when it's time for the big ask? Remember to approach with positivity and preparation. Let your company know that you enjoy working there and that you'd like to be a part of their bright future. Ease them into understanding that you are a valuable player and deserve to be compensated fairly. Negotiation isn't an argument. It's a conversation that you get to steer. Be prepared, be positive, and be open to hearing your counterpart out as well. When we talk about preparation, this means doing market research. If you're a woman, have conversations with the men in your industry and your coworkers about what they're being paid. If you know your accurate salary range, you can use that to get paid fairly for your work. This is a great tactic for men too. And this brings me to another point, the importance of allyship and mentorship for male colleagues. Allyship doesn't always have to be a grand gesture. Even a small gesture like listening and supporting a female coworker during a meeting can make a huge impact. Impact. But if you want to go above and beyond, have an open conversation about salary with another woman or become a mentor this is an awesome way to help. Women and men need to work together to make these changes happen. Now I have to say as a young woman who was in corporate for over seven years, I often felt like I was at an extreme disadvantage because executive men would never want to be my mentor. I would reach out to them and let them know that I really would like them to be my mentor. And because I was a woman, a young woman, and honestly an attractive woman at that, I felt like these men never wanted to be my mentors because they thought that it would look weird. And so they just avoided me. And I saw a lot of these men that were my coworkers and colleagues get mentors from the executive leaders who were mostly males, and I was left out. And I have to say, that is one of the reasons why I ended up leaving corporate and starting my own company, because I felt like I actually didn't have anybody who was gonna elevate me and bring me up. And you really need that type of person when you're trying to move up in corporate. And so, if you're a male executive out there, I want you to take heed to my story. I was a young woman in corporate, really hoping for a male mentor. And never got that opportunity. I never had any male leaders take me under their wing. And I really want you to think about women in your workplace who really deserve to be mentored and who might not be getting the opportunities just because they're a woman and you're a man. So let's think outside of the box. Let's keep it non-sexual, non-romantic, and just realize that we're all people looking to make a difference in the world and we're here to support each other. And I can't think of better people to start these changes than my awesome Young and Profiting List. So I'd love to hear from you guys. DM me on Instagram or Twitter at Yap with Hala or find me on LinkedIn by searching Hala Taha. And lastly, I have some exciting news. There's a new way to get in touch with me. You can now text me directly and join my YAP text community powered by Slick Text. All you have to do is text the keyword YAP, Y-A-P, to my short code 28046. You'll receive texts from me, updates on the podcast, and exclusive YAP content like giveaways and discounts. Again, text the word YAP to my short code 28046. And if you like this episode, be sure to leave us a five-star review on your favorite podcast platform, or share it with a friend. Share this episode with a friend so we can get the word out, so we can break the glass ceiling once and for all. As always, thanks for listening to Young and Profiting Podcast, and thanks so much to my YAP team. I'll see you next time. This is Hala signing off.